right. Well, you're really close. You know, I always thought the, the front row as the baptism row. You're blessed, Grayson. Good morning. My name is Chris. I am the director of Justice Initiatives and Global Missions here at Cornerstone Church. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for Sunday worship. It's a joy to have you here. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been going through a Lenten series on Jesus' journey to the cross. Jesus, described by the authors of the Gospels, is looking towards Friday, this day of sorrow. Because everything that Jesus has done in his life, his, his ministry, his teaching, his healings, his interactions with the Pharisee, everything is pointing to now. This is the climax of the narrative. But what happens seems to be sadly anticlimactic. There is no heroic rescue. There is no avenging, no undoing of justice. Friday ends with a whimper. Friday ends with Jesus' death. So what does this mean for you and me? What does this day of sorrow change about our lives? And so before we get into that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for the air that fills our lungs. We thank you for the heart that pumps our blood. We thank you that we are alive. And we thank you that we get to worship you today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, awaken us from whatever despair and numbness we might be feeling. Energize us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the Harry Potter series, there exists a, a magical object called the Mirror of Erised. It's a special mirror that reflects the deepest, desperate desires of those who look at it. You see yourself, and you see your deepest desires in the mirror. And when Harry Potter stumbles upon this mirror at his first year at Hogwarts, he sees for the very first time his parents, his family. Because as an orphan, all Harry wanted was a family. And Professor Dumbledore says he sees socks, lots of socks. But we find out later he was lying because what he saw was his family too. Whole, mended, together. If you stare into that mirror, what would you see? What is your desperate, deepest desire? Do you see yourself in the mirror working at your ideal job? You might see yourself with the spouse you've always dreamed about at this unimaginably beautiful wedding? Or do you see yourself with your family in a house, with your children all grown up, turning out to be amazing human beings? What do you see? What is your deepest desire in life? Now, 
If you don't end up ever having any of those things, would your life be a failure? Would your life be hopeless? So like the mirror of error said, Jesus reflects something back too. And how Jesus fulfills or subverts hopes and expectations is a source of tension between all the people he encounters throughout his life. And Jesus fulfills people's deepest desires in an unexpected, subversive way. So when I see Jesus on the cross, how does he reflect my desires? That's a question you have to wrestle with. Uh, Because of the time constraints, I can't detail or delineate for you everything that happens on Friday. It is Jesus' busiest day. He does not sleep. But we'll look at three brief conversations Jesus has that reveals what this day of Friday, this day of sorrow, has to teach about, has to teach us about Jesus and our desires. So the first conversation is with the high priest. At the beginning of this week, Jesus, if you remember, overturns the marketplace in the temple. He asserts his authority, as Janet explained, over the Pharisees. And this is likely what got him killed. Why? This convinced the leaders of the temple and the Jewish people that Jesus was becoming a problem. His ever-growing social influence and the crowds that he drew, his clear authority over them as a teacher of the law, his healing ministries were making the Jewish leaders nervous. Is Jesus trying to start a rebellion? Is he trying to... Take our place. So the day of Friday begins with Jesus' arrest. Keeping the status quo is extremely important for the priests. They want to keep their power out of a sense of self-preservation, but they're also afraid. They're afraid what the Roman occupiers might do to Jewish people. And so... They can't legally execute Jesus themselves, but they can bring him in and decide if they wanted to bring him to the Roman authorities. And they begin this sham trial where they bring in countless witnesses whose uh, testimonies don't make sense, the details don't line. And finally, the high priest speaks up and he lays this question because he wants to trap Jesus. And this is what they talk about. Verse 61 But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? So what does that mean? What is the Messiah? The Messiah is, according to Jewish believers, the common expectation that one of David's royal descendants would come up and reestablish God's kingdom for Israel. This was going to be a political power, and they were going to overthrow the Romans. So this is a trap, because if Jesus says no, he completely discredits his ministry. But if Jesus says yes, he indicts himself, and he'll die. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds very curtly, I am. 
but he doesn't end there. He says, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest becomes infuriated. What's going on? Jesus is saying he's much more than a national savior. He's much more than a king. Jesus is saying he is the fulfillment of a prophecy the prophet Daniel wrote about in Daniel chapter 7. To be the son of man coming down on clouds from heaven, Jesus is asserting that the God who will rescue the world from brokenness and sin, who will punish the evildoers, is standing right before the high priest's eyes. And even though the high priest is judging him now because Jesus is the cosmic ruler, he will judge the high priest. Now, imagine the indignation, confusion that the high priest is feeling. This low-born, low-life from the countryside is telling me that he's going to give me justice? Jesus' response is, is insulting, it's infuriating, and it's blasphemous. But Jesus is saying, no, I am so much more than what you desire. You want a Messiah who is politically motivated to punish the Romans, but I'm not going to do that. You have no power over me. I like how C.S. Lewis explains it. Next slide. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise. And is calling us to all take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So what is Jesus really saying? Jesus is saying, I am the divine rescuer of this world. I am your divine rescuer. Jesus' mission in the world is not to condemn it, but through him, to save it. His mission is to rescue the world and heal its wounds. What Jesus is doing, he's subverting those who hope for justice by stating that God's perfect criminal justice system will be fulfilled only at the end times. Jesus is also revealing that his eventual crucifixion will show that Jesus does not assert his authority over the world through force or at the expense of anyone's lives but his own. Jesus' enthronement is his crucifixion, his most humiliating, disgraceful moment. And there's something particular about the fact that he is enthroned, that he's taking back his world at the moment of his deepest shame. Because he's telling you he wants to redeem your pain. That your pain matters. By giving up his life for a ransom, Jesus saves the world, not at the expense of other people's lives, but only at the expense of his own. Jesus does not come with a sword in his hand, but nails 
through his hands. So let's break down the implications of Jesus' rescue mission. So if I were to suggest to you that the world needs to be saved, I'm telling you there's something inherently broken about this world. And specifically, something is broken and needs to be fixed within all of us. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And sin is not so much what we do, but it is an innate genetic defectiveness in our souls. And if you grew up in the church, or if you've been a Christian for a while, to be declared a sinner is not very offensive anymore. You've been kind of trained to just accept it as true. But to a non-believer, to be called a sinner doesn't really make sense. Why do I need to go to church to be a good person? I know I'm flawed inside, but at my very core, I'm a good person. Do I really need God? But any of us here can quickly think of embarrassing situations where our actions do not reflect our sense of morality, our spiritual maturity, or our age. A few weeks ago, Esther was dropping me off home, and uh, as she was trying to back out of the driveway next to her house, a car uh, stopped right right in front of her and kept honking. And uh, I can't really tell you what I said because I'm extremely shameful. I was very angry. It was was holy anger. Um, (laughs) What are you doing? Get out of the way. And he did. But Jesus, not Jesus, Esther didn't look at me. (laughs) And that was the first warning sign. I went inside, I sat on the couch, and shame just poured over me like a bucket of paint. That was really immature of me. That guy was just trying to avoid a car accident. There's something wrong with my programming. Looking to Jesus requires you to come to terms with your innate flaws. Should you not get into grad school? Should you find yourself completely disappointed by all the people you really love? Would you be okay with that? If none of your expectations come to pass, would you be okay? And a part of you is like, yes. But experientially, but when it comes, push comes to shove, you're like, I don't really think so. We all need Jesus to rescue us. So in Jesus' first conversation with the high priest, we learned that he is our divine rescuer. And let's look at Jesus' second conversation. So eventually, injustice prevails. The Pharisees take Jesus to a number of political leaders who want nothing to do with Jesus because they don't want this political situation dirtying their hands. But eventually, the Roman governor, Pilate, relents and he sentences Jesus to die. And after being carried to, forced to carry his own cross to the execution site, Jesus is finally nailed between two criminals. And something for you to know is, Crucifixion is a method of execution usually reserved for enemies of the state. The Roman army would crucify rebels to make examples out of them in order to deter them 
from taking action against the colonial power. And these criminals who are nailed next to Jesus are, according to the Gospel of Mark, are rebels. They tried to instigate the overthrowing of the colonial government, but they failed. And here they are being executed and their attempts to do justice thwarted. One of the criminals comments that Jesus should not be here. He has done no wrong. But he and his partner, because of things they've committed, they are receiving their just reward. And he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, truly today you will be with me in paradise. So let's break down the first sentence. What is the criminal asking? What is he requesting? He's asking Jesus to remember him. This is not remembering in a nostalgic, emotional way, like the song Remember Me from Coco. <laughs> Petitioning to remember, be remembered is a plea for deliverance. You'll see this all over the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God remembers the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why he steps in to deliver the Israelites out of Exodus. The nameless criminal hopes that Jesus will rescue him in death. This is a confession. This is his repentant statement, an admission that he has done wrong and that he needs rescue. And how does Jesus respond? Truly, you will be with me in paradise today. Jesus' statement signifies three things, and we'll go through them quickly. Truly signifies certainty. The certainty of Jesus' promise. Another way of translating truly is, let it be so, or amen. Today signifies immediacy. When they die, the criminal can expect to open his eyes and find himself next to Jesus. His repentant confession immediately grants him access into Jesus' kingdom. And finally, paradise signifies forever. When you think about paradise, what images conjure up? Maybe heaven? Maybe a beach? Maybe the Garden of Eden? What Jesus means by a paradise, it's an eternal Garden of Eden. This is the kind of place that Jesus is going to rule. So what does this mean for you and me? When you commit to a relationship with Jesus, Jesus' rescue is immediate and forever. Jesus immediately and forever welcomes you into his family. There is no qualifying effort. And this religion of Jesus is unlike any other religion or system of beliefs or worldviews because you can neither qualify nor disqualify yourself before Jesus' eyes. But life isn't always like that. So let's think about credit. Do you, do you, you guys know how credit works, right? Um, lenders look at your credit history to decide whether or not to offer you a new line of credit. Landlords look at your credit and decide whether you're able to pay your rent on time. Your credit score and credit history are extremely important. If you mismanage your finances and miss your credit card payments a few times, you're going to 
find yourself having a hard time securing a low interest rate, or maybe even getting the apartment you want. The same goes for applying to grad school or jobs. You want the right credentials, you want the right references, you want the right background. It seems like you're constantly monitored in life for the choices you make. But Jesus does not look at your personal history like a bank or a potential employer. Your record of sins is not determinative in Jesus' eyes. He doesn't look at your record to judge you for the shameful things you've done. He, they don't play into Jesus' view of you in any way. There is no ideal or standard of what a Christian should be like in order to be saved. There is no mold you and I have to work to fit into. And that's what makes Jesus' religion stand out. No matter what situation you come from, no matter what hole you dig yourself into, Jesus does not discriminate who he rescues. Jesus will rescue you. And his rescue is immediate and forever. So for the criminal, the injustices that he's experienced propelled him to take matters into his own hands. And ironically, the pursuit of justice forced him to commit acts of evil. And when he sees Jesus, he sees someone who is truly innocent. Someone who does not fight back when he's wronged. And in Jesus, the criminal sees the justice that he's always sought in his life. If your holds for yourself fizzle out like fire in the rain, you should know for anyone who confesses that Jesus is the divine rescuer, you will always have hope in this lifetime and in the next. So, in the first conversation with the high priest, Jesus teaches he's our divine rescuer. In the second conversation with the criminal, he teaches that his rescue is immediate and forever. And now we look at a third conversation. Jesus' conversation with his own mom. And when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus, because he is elevated, looks into the crowd and sees his mother with a man who most scholars agree to be the Apostle John. And we're not sure if his mother said anything to Jesus. As a mother, who knows what Mary must have felt. What we have here is what Jesus said to his mother and John. And something that's Something that haunts the gospel stories is the absence of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. Joseph plays an extremely prominent role at the beginning of the gospel stories. He adopts Jesus into his family. But we're not sure what happened to Joseph because he begins to phase out. And we can reasonably include, conclude that Joseph probably passed. 
And because Jesus is the oldest son, he has a responsibility to lead and provide for his family. However, his rescue mission takes Jesus away from his home and begins his journey to the cross. So, Mary, who lost a husband, who stayed by her through the scandal of her miraculous pregnancy before they got married, is about to lose her firstborn son, her security and hope in this life. However, Jesus does something very interesting. He doesn't apologize, but he places Mary into John's care. He grafts them into each other's lives. He wants to redeem Mary's situation. And why does Jesus do it this way? Jesus had family. He had younger brothers. Why does he put this demand on John? And there's something really special about the fact that Jesus entrusts his mom to John, his disciples. And it's this. Jesus rescues us into his family. Jesus rescues us into redeeming situations, and these redemptive opportunities takes place in his family, a very different kind of family we call the church. Because you have to know, Jesus doesn't just rescue invisible souls. There is a tangible, transformative effect that takes place while you're alive here on earth. For Mary, her security and hope in life was in Jesus, but Jesus fulfills and turns her expectations upside down. Mom, I'm going to take care of you, but it's just not in the way you thought. I'm adopting people into this new family of mine at the cost of my own life. And this new family is going to take care of you. This is the family where we experience the blessings and benefits of Jesus' rescuing work. In Galatians 6, Paul says, It's in the church where we restore a person gently after he's caught in sin. The church is where we bear one another's burdens, where we do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of God. The church is not where you find your best friends. The church is not about you. The church is where we serve one another. Jesus' mission, according to Mark 10, verse Uh, 10 verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now what does that look like? The church is where we remind you that you have hope no matter what happens. Where we remind you of God's truth in your life. Your, gen- your dreams shatter like broken glass. You lose a loved one. Your vocational plans go up in smokes because you got fired. You're struggling with mental health. Where do you go? You go to the church. This is the place where we bear one another's burdens. This is where we feel the visceral effects of Jesus' rescue through the church family. And in our community, I hope you learn that Jesus is the greatest fulfillment of your heart. It is in the church 
where we feel the distance between us and God vanish. Something I struggled a lot growing up, uh, something I struggled with a lot growing up was uh, depression. And one of the ways it manifested was I was just very lonely. Felt like I was trying really hard to fit in, struggling with what it really meant to be a man. I don't struggle with this as much, but that might be what I just convinced myself. I used to be one of those people who used to say, I don't reach out to people first. And someone who was like that, I can say, people just say that to protect themselves. And as I grew in my faith, as people surrounded me, loving me, affirming me, validating me, I began to become more comfortable with myself. But still, sometimes I despair. When I reach out to friends, I text them, they might not be responsive because they're busy. But I have to share this with my friends so that they remind me that I am not alone. That I am worthy to be pursued. So how do we make this family of Jesus work out in your community groups. And I know you have a very short amount of time left. Number one, change the questions you ask each other. Don't ask, how are you? Don't ask, don't just say, what's up? When I was uh, saying hi to Jay for the first time, I said, what's up? And as I sat down, I was like, oh, I could have asked better questions. <laughs> because when you just say, how are you? You're pretty much giving people an invitation to just end the conversation. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Make God a part of those questions. What is something God has been teaching you about yourself? Where has God been showing up in your workplace? What are the little ways God has been allowing you to minister to people in your life? Ask questions that involve God. And number two, serve people together with your community groups. A community that is not serving people will not ultimately grow. And it ultimately fails to reflect God's heart. I'm not sure what justice ministry will look like at Cornerstone Church, but we have people who are already ministering to the homeless, to the victims of sex trafficking, to underprivileged students, if you want to reach out to them, find me. We'll get you connected. My morning devotional had this quote from Martin Luther King, and he wrote, it has always been the responsibility of the church to broaden horizons, challenge the status quo, and break the moors when necessary. The church must remind its worshipers that man finds greater security in devoting his life to the eternal demands of the God Almighty and in giving his ultimate allegiance to the transitory demands of man. The church must remind its worshipers that man finds greater security in devoting his life to the eternal demands of the God Almighty and in giving his ultimate allegiance to the transitory demands of man.
community, church has to be more than just getting to know each other. It has to be about sharing your faith. It has to be about reaching out to the marginalized where help is not going. And if you feel like your faith is stagnant, if you want to grow, there, there are people who really need your help. And you will be God's representatives to them and let them know that there is hope for them. Jesus is our divine rescuer. His rescue is immediate and forever, and he rescues us into his family. He is the fulfillment of your heart's cravings, your deepest, desperate desires. So when you see the cross, when you see Jesus hanging on that tree, what do you see? For a lot of us who grew up in the church, for people who have been Christians for a long time, You've been taught to see yourself. That should be me on the cross. That Jesus' atoning work on the cross reflects your sinful humanity. It's true, but it's not really the full picture. There's more to that. As someone who adopts us into his redemptive family, Jesus is much more than a reflection. He is our adoptive father who suffers silently and pays the expense of your debt to God. But if he just died, that would just make him a moral, upright person. Because when Jesus dies, and he truly dies, if he just remains in the grave, he's just a person. And that's the end of our story. But Jesus is the Father who will always be with you, who will be with you in paradise, who will redeem your situation, no matter how impossible it might be, because in three days, in three days, on Sunday morning, the sun will rise. On Sunday morning, the stone will roll away, and air will begin to fill his lungs, and he will rise. And on Sunday morning, Jesus' rescue mission will be completed. He will rise from the dead to give you hope. All right. It was on Thursday evening of Holy Week that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. What we um, have as our first Lord's Supper or communion. It was... um, in the history of the church, that Thursday has been known as Monday Thursday from the Latin word mandatum, which means command. Because it was on, um, during the, the Last Supper that Jesus said to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The mandate of the Lord's Supper is that we are called to love one another as Jesus has loved us. So through the history of the church, the Lord's Supper has also been known as a love feast. That's one of the the terms that it's been known as. So in the moments of our reflection during communion, would you reflect on two things? 
would you first reflect on how great Jesus' love is for you, that he would willingly go to the cross and suffer the pain and the shame so that you might gain friendship with God. And even as Chris has shared in the dialogues that Jesus went through leading up to the cross, Jesus was willing to endure all of that because he loves you perfectly and completely. And he so wanted to restore you to friendship with God. So would you reflect first on that in the moments as we prepare for the Lord's Supper? And then secondly, and, and really what we sang earlier is what I want you to reflect on first. How great, how great, how great is his love for us? And then secondly, would you reflect on who it is that you are called to love like Jesus loves you? Who in your life are you called to love sacrificially? Jesus said that he gave us an example that we should walk in his steps. It was also during the Last Supper that he said, greater love has no one than this, than that they would lay down their lives for their friends. Who are you called to love in the community like Jesus loves you? So that we as the body of Christ can can truly sing how great, how great, how great is our love for one another. But then not just in the body of Christ, because there is a hurting world that desperately needs to know that it is loved by somebody, that that there is somebody who will care, that is somebody who will come and be part of Jesus' rescue for them. Because I long for the world one day to be able to sing, how great, how great, how great is their love for us. They must be disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then afterwards I'll ask the communion servers to come forward. Lord Jesus, we've been walking through your final week, day by day, and there's so much more that we haven't covered, but there's so much significance. And on that Friday of Holy Week, as Chris said at the beginning, you didn't sleep. From the Last Supper, that Passover meal that you celebrated with your disciples, from there you went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and and then then from there you were betrayed and arrested and and tried and tortured and, and and ridiculed and mocked and marched to the cross where you were still ridiculed and mocked. Where you gave up your life so that we might have life, quality of life, and life forever. And may we follow in your steps. So during these moments of communion, Lord Jesus, invite us into your love. Invite us and invite us to love with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.